Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. in that time of prayer. And friends, prayer like that is one thing that marked the early Christian community as unique. Um, And there are many other things that made that community unique, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So let's get ready to turn our attention to the book of Acts. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been walking through the book of Acts, this first century text that documents the early church in its earliest days, uh, that focuses on what Jesus' first followers did with his teaching. Um, And this morning, to anchor our time together, I'd love to begin with an observation. And the observation is actually a historical reality. And this reality, it's one that sometimes makes people of faith uncomfortable. Uh, It's one that's sometimes used, maybe even in university settings, to kind of challenge or cause question of people's faith. It's one that's not frequently mentioned in many churches. Uh, But as you know, we kind of like to take risks here, so we're going to talk about it today. Uh, It's a reality that's sometimes ignored, denied, or downplayed, but it is true, and the reality is this. In the ancient world, many people claimed to be divine. Did you know this? Maybe you've heard this. In the ancient world, many people claimed to be divine. I mean, every emperor of Rome would have told you that they were a god. And one of the emperors, Vespasian, was even said to have, like, cured someone of blindness, right? There were many people that claimed to be divine. The first century was a supernatural age. Multiple miracle workers made their way through Palestine, gathering crowds and performing signs and wonders, garnering their own fame. Uh, it's just one example the historian Josephus tells us, uh, tells us of this guy they called the Egyptian. And the Egyptian was this traveling supernaturalist who led a flock of 30,000 people through Palestine. Um, and he claimed that he could topple the walls of Jerusalem with just a word. Like if he'd say the word, the walls of Jerusalem would fall. Except he never really got the chance to do that because he was killed by Rome and then his movement died with him. Uh, but that didn't stop a few years later another guy named Jonathan to emerge. And Jonathan gathered crowds and it was claimed that he could heal and that he had abundant power. And then he was also killed by Rome. But there were so many others. There was Theudas, there was Judas the Galilean, Apollonius of Tyana, um, all these men and many, many more. They traveled and the t- they taught. They all claimed supernatural power. Uh, They all had committed followers who would like be so fiercely loyal to their causes. And I know that this world can be somewhat hard to imagine because our world is a little less enchanted than the first century, right? Like we're not as quick to believe or recognize that there's a supernatural dimension in life, that there are unseen realities that shape seen realities. In fact, today, Uh, There's really only one person, Kanye, who exhibits a God complex and maintains any kind of following. Uh, But in the ancient world, I'm telling you, this was commonplace. There were all sorts of spiritual movements led by all sorts of spiritual leaders, and that is just a fact of history. But I think it's a fact that begs a question, and a question that's really going to shape our time together today. And, And the question is this, what then 
made Christianity unique? I mean, why did it survive the first century when Theudas' movement and Judas the Galilean's movement and Jonathan's movement and so many others did not? I mean, there were countless spiritual movements birthed in Palestine under Roman rule that ceased to exist only a few decades after the death of their founders. I mean, quite literally, hundreds of movements that claimed they would last forever. Yet only Christianity remains. And it's the sole survivor, to reference one of Chris's favorite shows, right? Now, get, uh, it's remarkable that it's here. In this reality, it's something that historians and theologians have sought to explain for centuries. I mean, some just say, man, Christians just got lucky. You know, right place, right time, ride the wave, kind of surfing, you know, into success and fame. Others say that Christianity, like it rode Rome's coattails, you know, it just knew to latch onto the empire and then a great emperor would make it the official religion of the land. I mean, others have said that Christianity endured because its missionaries were the most zealous or because its writers were the most effective. There have been many hypotheses as to why Christianity alone remains. But today, I'd like to suggest that the next text in our study of Acts, Acts chapter 5, actually offers an answer to the question, what made Christianity unique? And it's an answer that challenges me, even as it stirs my faith. It deepens my confidence that Christianity isn't just one belief system among many, but rather is the truth about all things. Why do I say that? Well, today, as we study Jesus' first followers' reactions to intensifying opposition from their critics, I believe we're going to witness this growing movement of real people who are following their Savior, what he's modeled, and are confident that God is with them, and that that is what made and still makes Christianity unique. But I don't just want you to take my word for it. I want us to see it together from the scriptures. So we've got to turn our attention to the text. If you have a Bible with you, will you join me in Acts chapter 5? Acts 5, you could find it on your phone or in a Bible. And if not, uh, all the words will be on the screen as well that we covered. Acts 5, beginning in verse 12, there we read that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, and no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So we find Jesus' followers in Acts chapter 5 doing what they've been doing. They're helping and they're healing. They're meeting people in very real circumstances. They're making a difference and making a splash. They're intervening with power to help folks in awful situations, and the city is going crazy. I mean, crowds are gathering and coming to them in pursuit of relief and assistance. So then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with admiration? Oh, wait, no, jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. 
So Jesus' followers are gaining a lot of momentum. They're helping people with real needs. The established religious leaders of the day are filled with jealousy, and they decide, hey, these people that are helping and doing good deeds in the city, like even though they're helping, we can't have this. We've got to put them in jail. Now, if you've been with us on this journey through Acts, you know this is the second time Jesus' followers have found themselves in jail. The first time they did, they were warned like never to speak of Jesus again and we'll let you go, but like you just gotta keep quiet about this stuff, but they just couldn't help themselves. So now they find themselves in jail again. But, verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, the angel said, and tell the people about this new life, by which the angel means life with Christ. So at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. So Jesus' followers are doing nice things in the city. The leaders get really jealous. They put them in jail. An angel breaks them out. And now, as you can imagine, the high priest and his followers, they must be furious because they thought this was a problem they had neutralized. But here's Jesus' followers again in public, healing, helping, and doing one step further. They're teaching people how they do what they do. They're saying, man, the power that we get to heal and help and minister, it comes from that guy who you killed, who's actually alive, who's worthy of following, more worthy of following than you. I mean, they're laying it all out on the line, holding nothing back. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they draw Jesus' followers to them, and emotions are high, things are intense, the disciples aren't backing down, and the leaders are getting more and mad. So when they hear this, they, they get furious. And they decide they want to put Jesus' followers to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, he stood up in the Sanhedrin and he ordered that the men be put outside for a while. And actually, archaeologists say this is the first recorded instance where we see a timeout uh, in Scripture, right? Thank you, thank you. Uh, there's a timeout, and then Gamaliel, he addresses the Sanhedrin, and here's what he says. He says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men, meaning let's pump the brakes before we get this death sentence coming out. Some time ago, he says, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him, but he was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, but he too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you won't be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourself fighting against God. See, here's the point. Here's the big idea at the center of our time together this morning. As tensions rise, Gamaliel, a respected Pharisee, honored by everyone, stands up and he dismisses Jesus' followers from the room. He decides, hey, I'm really, I want to talk to just my friends and comrades who are spiritual leaders here. And he tells his buddy, hey, let's take a deep breath and look. If this, is this, if this movement is like the ones that we've seen already, if this is like Theodos, is this a, if this is like Judas the Galilean, if this is just another movement that's fueled by a charismatic leader 
who wants some fame or notoriety and can gather a crowd and travels through the countryside like doing a few signs and wonders that make people happy, we've got nothing to worry about because those movements have come and they've gone. There were followers and there are none anymore. If this is just another one of those movements like we've seen before, there's no need to fret. It will not last. But if it's from God, he says, we, we won't even be able to stop it. We'll only find ourselves fighting against God, and that is futile. So Gamaliel says, let's just relax. You know, let's see what happens. It's like, time will tell. So friends, if we could travel back 2,000 years and place ourselves in the middle of this conversation between the religious leaders in the first century who opposed Jesus and his teaching, I think we'd find at least the first part of the answer to our question, what made Christianity unique? And ironically, the answer comes from a Pharisee named Gamaliel, someone who was opposing Jesus or at least wouldn't have agreed with his teaching, but he said, if this thing lasts... If this stands the test of time, if it's going to do what all other religious movements could not do, it will only be because God is in it and for it and working through it. And friends, the fact remains hundreds of religious movements were born in the first century. Only one remains. So, what do you think of Gamaliel's proposition? I mean, is this shrewd? Is it wise? Was he just trying to keep the peace? You know, he's like, no murder today. Uh, what can I do? And so, oh, here's a good idea. You know, he's like, just trying to calm things down. Was he mistaken? Is there anything that we should take from what he said here 2,000 years later? I'll say this. I, I find Gamaliel's proposition really compelling. It's intriguing to me. Uh, this idea that Christianity would survive the first century only because God's power was behind it and underneath it and in it. I find it real intriguing because it actually reminds me of a teaching Jesus gave when he was walking on earth. Before the religious leaders had him killed and then he like thwarted their plans by coming back to life. But while he was alive the first time, uh, Jesus taught his disciples that they should watch out for false prophets because they'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. I mean, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. Uh, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, Jesus says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, friends, admittedly, I don't know a whole lot about plants. Are there any, like, plant experts here? Anyone who's really good at plants? I know, Kat, I know you are. Thanks for raising your hand. You're right. You are phenomenal at plants. Guys, I'm like awful at plants. By the time I left my apartment in Kansas City before moving here, every plant in my house was plastic. I mean, I went totally fake. I had tried having plants. I did succulents. People said, you're not going to be able to kill these. I killed them. Uh, I just, honestly, I care too much. Anyone else like care too much? Meaning I'm an overwaterer. So I just like, I want this plant to do so well. I'm drowning them out. I mean, I cannot keep plants alive to save my life. I don't know much about plants, but I do know this, that the kind of fruit that grows on a tree tells you what kind of tree it is. I mean, fruit takes time to grow. 
And at first, it looks like there's not fruit there. It's just, you know, some other tree with normal branches, but then a bud sprouts, and then another, and suddenly you realize you've got a whole different kind of tree on your hands. So what makes Christianity unique? And I hope we're starting to see maybe an answer. Clearly, you can tell I've got some opinions, but you owe it to yourself to have an answer to that question, to have a thoughtful response as to why a movement that started like so many others in the first century would become the world's largest faith, the only one to survive. I mean, maybe it was just a matter of timing. I mean, maybe early Christians did just get lucky, or maybe they didn't. Maybe there was something else or someone else behind this movement. I mean, what makes Christianity unique? Gamaliel gives us some answers, but ultimately I think there's some more to glean in the next two verses. See, after Gamaliel stopped the Inquisition and invited his friends to think more rationally about their you know, behaviors, like deep breath, okay, no murder today. After he did that, calmer heads did prevail. And the text says that his speech, Gamaliel's speech, actually persuaded them. So they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Yeah, it's not so bad. No, then they ordered them. No, I'm just kidding. They probably couldn't walk when they left, but that's a necessary historical detail. Uh, but then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and decided to let them go. So the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So don't miss this. After all that, we're helping people. We're in jail. We're out of jail because of the angel. We're back in trouble. Now we're beaten. And again, I kind of let it slip there. I mean, this wasn't going to be in the manuscript, but guys, I mean, a beating in the first century, it's a pretty brutal beating. This isn't like, you know, playing bloody knuckles with your friends in elementary school. This is like a brutal thing. And still the text says, they leave this beating in the place of their captivity rejoicing. Rejoicing. And why? Why are they rejoicing? Well, the text tells us it's because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, namely on behalf of Jesus for his name. Worthy of receiving an unfair beating just like their leader and Lord had been unfairly beaten and bruised and broken. See, friends, this is another key to understanding the vibrancy and vitality of the Christian faith. Uh, this response to suffering, this response to opposition, this response to being misunderstood or mistreated. I mean, a cynic might call it masochistic, and other folks might call it crazy, but Christians in the first century and Christians today embraced mistreatment like this because they were confident that the worst possible thing had already happened to the best possible person. See, they knew someone, they'd followed someone who had always been loving and merciful and gentle and kind, and yet they'd watched him be brutally murdered unfairly and unjustly. I mean, their rabbi, their teacher, their leader never leveraged his power for his own benefit. And he always gave and sacrificed and blessed those that he encountered. I mean, he served others and helped others and placed them ahead of himself. So, when given the opportunity to do the same thing, when threatened by the religious leaders, when told that they could avoid pain if only they'd quit teaching and quit healing, they said, no, thank you. 
We'll, we'll gladly suffer for doing good or for speaking truth just like Jesus. And they rejoiced when they experienced this kind of opposition because they understood that it gave them something in common with their friend and savior. See, like first century people living around Christians, they thought that Christians' love and generosity and sacrifice was over the top and unnecessary, just like totally foolish. But Jesus' followers were undeterred in doing what they had seen him do while he walked the earth. I mean, they saw someone who had not an ounce of insincerity or manipulation or regret, but rather someone filled with joy who lived freely and generously. They watched him uh, experience full life by laying his life down for others, and so they did the same things that he did. I mean, they taught what he taught. They baptized like he baptized, inviting new people into their community. They devoted themselves to hospitality towards having meals together, to praying together, and they suffered together because Jesus suffered. Now, I know that summer is upon us. It might not feel like it outside today, but people have said, like, allegedly summer's here. Is that true? Has summer arrived? And summer is a time for many things, but one of those things is camping. Are there any, like, campers here? Guys, I might not look like it. I know that you might think, man, first to start, but I promise you, very tough, very tough in the outdoors. Uh, I've done my share of camping trips. Love camping in the summer. It's nice to camp when it's warm, but there's like bugs and stuff. If you want peak camping, according to even my father, this is a John Chernesky favorite, you have got to go camping in the winter. Okay, winter camping, it's calm, it's peaceful, it's serene. I mean, have you ever slept in a snow cave? And I have, right? Have you ever been? I mean, it's such a blast. And so I remember this one time my dad and I were camping in the northernmost part of Michigan, like that upper, upper peninsula, right? And it was freezing, and I had forgotten something that I needed, forgotten maybe a face mask, my nose was getting cold, or socks, my feet were cold. I can't quite remember. But when this happened, when there was something that I needed but didn't have, my dad gave me his, and he went without See, what I'm saying is if I needed gloves, my dad would give me his gloves and his hands would go cold. Or if I needed socks, I'd get his and then he would endure discomfort. See, I'd have made a mistake. I would have forgotten something I needed for the camping trip. I would have neglected to do what I should have done. But nevertheless, my dad would take the cost of my error and he would sacrifice his comfort, his warmth, his dryness for my well-being so that I wouldn't be lacking or hurting. And friends, what true, what's true is Jesus' followers in the early church did the same thing. They suffered for the good of others so that others could hear the good news of Jesus, so that others could find hope and healing in him. They did it because they'd seen Jesus do it? I mean, why would they do such a thing? Why would my dad do such a thing? Why would he say no to himself so that he could say yes to me? Why did he say, you made this error, but I'll pay this cost? Well, friends, it's, it's because he loved me, right? because he loves me. And friends, that's what's always made Christianity unique. I mean, this mind-blowing, soul-shattering declaration that God isn't mad at the people that he made and that God isn't out to get or to torment the people that he made, but that God loves the world that he made and the people that he made so much that he decided to enter reality and set everything right again. 
because God loves you and loves me and gave himself for you and for me. I mean, why did Christianity survive the first century? I mean, we've seen some answers. Gamaliel says it's because God must have been underneath it and behind it and working through it. And why did it survive the first century? Because Christians were willing to take the suffering they experienced and instead say, no, if it's for the good of others, like, we'll endure it. And this makes us like our Savior. And why did it survive the first century? Because the message was incredibly unique. This message of Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to redeem the world he made. I mean, simply put, Christianity survived the first century. It was unique because Jesus was unique. Because he wasn't a guru focused on his own fame. Or this insurrectionist trying to make a legacy, saying, you know, like, I'm the one who took down Rome. But instead, he was God in the flesh, come to earth, focused on humanity, inviting us to live life fully, life as it was made to be lived, eternal life with him. Now, friends, I'll be honest. I mean, maybe you're here this morning, and I've been like, hey, what makes Christianity unique? Why do you think it survived? And I've laid out a bit of a case, and you're still not convinced. You're like, gosh, it's nice to hear what you believe, Tyler, but honestly, I've, I've, I've seen too much. I've done too much. I've been experienced in this world. I've got some questions that no one's ever been able to answer for me. Like, I get what you're saying. I'm following your logic, but bro, I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not convinced. If that's you this morning, I want to say, we are so glad you're here and you're in the right spot. You're in a place that will answer any question you have, but never rush you. Uh, we never want you to say something dishonest about what you truly believe. We think that honesty is a great environment for growth. So if you're not there, let us know. I mean, we'll walk with you. We'll do anything we can for you. We're not going to try to manipulate you or pressure you. We're just so glad you're here. The only thing I would say to you is that I'm still convinced that you do owe it to yourself to have the answer to the question, why did Christianity survive the first century? What made it unique? I mean, maybe your answer won't be my answer, but the fact that Christianity made it out of the first century is something absolutely astounding, and it's changed the whole world, and you owe it to yourself to know why you think it did. And if you'd love a conversation partner along the journey, Chris or I, or both of us, or one of us, or sometimes one, sometimes the other, I mean, we would just love to meet with you. We love these kinds of conversations. But if you are here and you are convinced but man, there was something special about Jesus, something special about this movement that he launched, and it makes all the difference, and Jesus is someone worth celebrating and worth following. If that's you, then today as the band comes, I'd love to invite you to join me in participating in the meal that Jesus established for his followers. Again, we're doing simple church today. We've sung like they sung in Acts. We've prayed like they prayed in Acts. We've listened to the scriptures like they did in Acts. And now we're going to celebrate a meal that's been around since the beginning of this church, a meal focused on Jesus' death for us and God's grace extended freely to all people. As you came in today, maybe you were handed a little uh, communion cup. And if you didn't get one, you can raise your hand. They'll bring one to you if you want one. Uh, Taylor, I know that I, I left mine. I grabbed one and then I, you know, she gone. Uh, so I know I would love one. Uh, but yeah, these simple cups, uh, it's just an easy way for us to do this meal together. And as a reminder, these uh, nothing special or crazy about this. This is like the bread and juice, this is what Jesus established, that we could remember his death on our behalf. 
And this is something Jesus established at the very last meal that he shared with his disciples. And so I want to read some words that Paul wrote about this time. Paul says that, hey, here's how this meal began. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you peel back the top peel on your communion cup? And it is, it is a challenge. You got to really work for it this morning. I know that sometimes sticky hands don't work, but if you will peel back that top top layer and get that wafer out. I know I might need a grown-up to help me. There's no shame here, guys. We're on it. We're not going to push it. Oh, I think I got it. Just kidding. Oh, voila. There it is. Wow, you got riveting action this morning, right? So this is the wafer again. This represents Christ's body broken for us. This was bread initially, but today we're doing it with this wafer to remember Christ's body broken on our behalf. So if you have your wafer and you're a Jesus follower, would you take it now in remembrance of Christ's body broken for you? Now would you open the cup? This cup represents Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I'm a sacrifice unlike any other, a sacrifice that forms the center of our Christian faith. So would you take this now in remembrance of Christ's blood shed for you? Now, friends, like we have every Sunday, in the next few moments as we do our final um, set of worship, there will be people that are ready to pray for you by our two doors back here as you leave. Uh, you can tell we love prayer. So even if there's something else that you're like, man, I didn't get my request in, or there's something else that's come to mind during the service, we have people that would love to pray for you. Uh, we'll also have song that you could join in to sing and worship with our band, or maybe you need some time to pray quietly in your own seat or to reflect on what you've learned. Whatever you need to do now to respond from what you've heard from God's word, please take this time to engage with God. It's special time. It's quiet time. Time unlikely get anywhere else in the week. So would you engage God in the way you need this morning? And would you remember that Christianity is unique because Jesus is unique and Jesus' sacrifice was made for you because he loves you.